This episode of Vernacular is brought to you by Aloha. Aloha offers organic, plant-based protein powders, bars, superfood greens, and teas. I've used their protein powders for over a year, and they're great. Every powder is free of stevia, soy, and dairy, and made from peas, pumpkin seeds, hemp seeds, and nine other real ingredients. They have no artificial sweeteners, colors, or preservatives. And on top of that, each serving of Aloha provides 18 grams of plant-based protein, 200 milligrams of omega-3s, and healthy doses of iron and magnesium alongside a complete amino acid profile. The protein powders come in four different flavors, chocolate, vanilla, banana, and mixed berry. My personal favorites are their chocolate and vanilla flavors, and I've used them in smoothies, pancakes, muffins, and I'll even just stir the powder into plain Greek yogurt. They taste delicious, and I love their subscription options. To try out one of their protein powders, superfood greens, bars, or teas, just head to aloha.com. And when you do, make sure to enter the promo code vernacular at checkout so that you can receive 15% off on your first order. You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. All right, welcome to Vernacular Podcast. This is Season 7, Episode 6. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And we have an exciting episode today talking about watches, of all things. Yes, we had kind of previewed this guest in our very first episode of Season 7, and we finally have him here with us today, and we're really excited to talk to him. Yeah, and we'll get to that. But first, we're recording this on National Pumpkin Day, which if you did not know, like me this morning when I woke up, (laughs) is October 26th. And not only that, but we're releasing this episode on Halloween, October 31st. So we thought it'd be appropriate to talk about pumpkins. And obviously. have a pumpkin game. A pumpkin game. Sally <laughs> loves pumpkins. I am fine with pumpkins. <laughs> I have I no say objections. It's like my most favorite thing in the whole wide world, but I I do like pumpkins. To be fair, I think that you liked pumpkins more, more before it became like hipster cool to like pumpkins. Right. And now I'm just like in this rebellious phase. Right. Because now everyone's <laughs> like, oh my gosh, it's PSL season. Get my PSL. It's like pumpkin, whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm not above my pump of pumpkin in my coffee. I like the pumpkin flavor of right. things. So I'm not anti-pumpkin, but I'm just not as crazy about pumpkin as some uh, do you prefer pumpkin pie or apple pie? Ooh, uh, I don't know. Well, your hesitation kind of proves your point. Like yeah. you're not, you're not a pumpkin monomania. Right, right. So. Yeah. But you do know more about pumpkins than I do, which is yes, sort of the I have done some genesis research. of this game, I think, <laughs> if I know what I'm getting into here. Yeah. So I was inspired because we saw a list of pumpkins at um, a pumpkin patch kind of place where you could pick up pumpkins. And there were a list of heirloom pumpkin names right and i thought oh that would make a great game to to have to decide what the real heirloom pumpkin variety name is so this game is called heirloom pumpkin variety or magical pumpkin variety magical because i made it up in my so it does not exist imaginary so basically real or not real right so heirloom pumpkin variety or not okay gotcha that is my brilliant name i have to say before we started this i thought that pumpkins came in like two varieties i'm pretty sure i've seen a white pumpkin before okay yep there are white pumpkins and obviously i've seen orange yeah, pumpkins. so, so i just thought pumpkins. there was like there was white pumpkin and orange pumpkin and yeah. that those were the two the two varieties but yeah no turns out so many i'm in for a treat okay yeah. let's let's roll okay roll the tape all right so first pumpkin name red warty thing 
red warty thing oh this oh man because it like it sounds so made up like who would name a pumpkin that actually yeah. but then i wonder are you like are you are you trying to to make me think that you know what i mean right, so i have to like right. exactly that's like a, the game a game within a game yeah. um i feel like this is a coin toss i'm gonna go with magical pumpkin no this is Darn a it. real heirloom oh, pumpkin 50 yeah. 50 and I red warty thing okay okay um long island cheese Long Island cheese. Uh, real. Yep. Okay. Nailed it. Yep. There is actually a variety or a subset of family, a, a family of pumpkins, a subset. I don't know. They're called the cheese pumpkins. Okay. Yeah. And the Long Island cheese is one of them. One of them. Okay. Yeah. Um, Goldilocks. Um, uh, I'm going to go, going to go real on this one. Nope. Darn it. Fake. Uh, it Magical. sounds like a good pumpkin name. I know. I, know. I would totally eat a Goldilocks pumpkin. And the reason for that is because there is a Cinderella pumpkin. And so so maybe you've heard oh, of that okay. before. No. There's like a whole family <laughs> no. or subset. Very, very generous of you to think that, but no. <laughs> Again, there's a whole family of pumpkins fairy called Cinderella. Fairy tale pumpkins. Oh, okay. I think, yeah, I think there is fairy tale, but there's also Cinderella pumpkins. Okay. Yeah. Nat- naturally. Yeah. Well, because she turns into a pumpkin, right? Right. This, or right. not, she doesn't, but the stagecoach right. does. Yeah. Okay. Right. So that makes sense. So I'm I'm one for three right now. Okay. This okay. Is, this good. Is I'm a, glad you're this keeping track. This is a good. This is a good baseball batting average. So. <laughs> okay. Um. Hallow Hal. Hallow Hal. Uh, like a play on shallow Hal. Um, I guess. Real. No. Darn it! I made that one up because I thought like All Hallows Eve. Yeah. And yeah. Anyway, right. So cool. All right. I'm doing well. I'm impressed with your creativity. Thanks. Okay. I'm I one for four. Spent too much time this on this. This is still a good baseball batting average. <laughs> okay. Cotton candy. Real. Yes. Okay. Whew. I had to think about it for a second. All right. Um, Iron Man. Fake. Real. What? Yeah. No. It's an Iron that Man is pumpkin. Definitely my I know. new favorite I kind you'd of pumpkin. I appreciate that. Yeah. Is it, is it orange? What does it look like? Uh, yeah. It's an orange Describe one. it for me. Uh, it's an orange one. <laughs> okay. Does it have a radioactive center? <laughs> Not that I'm aware okay. of. <laughs> All right. Um, so hold on. I'm now two for six, I believe. I think so, Okay. Yeah. Two for six. Okay. Good. That's really good in baseball. So yeah, that is I'll good. I'll take it. Um, orange pillow. Orange pillow is definitely fake. Yeah, it's fake. Okay. Yes. <laughs> two, three for seven. Now. All right. Um, if okay. I get this next one right, I'm at 500. Ooh, this is okay. good. Okay. Um, Halloween in Paris. Halloween in Paris. Okay, this sounds so fake. But then did you choose it because you knew I would think it sounded fake? I can't really help you there. Um, it's kind of a like that's a long, it's a mouthful for a simple pumpkin. Right, so yeah. I go fake. Real. Darn it. <laughs> uh, uh, three for eight. Um, okay. Um, baby bear. Real. Yes. 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 All right. Four for nine. Um, candy corn. Oh man, uh, this one's tough too. Uh, it's, I mean, it sounds like it could be the name of corn for sure. Uh, <laughs> pumpkin, I'm not, not as convinced on. Um, I'm gonna go with fake. Fake, you're right. All right. Yep. Five for ten. I'm at five hundred. And then, all right, last one. Okay. Oh, this this is it. Is that is that that's appropriate, right? right? Yeah. yeah so this is your 
Okay. This this makes or breaks me. Here we go. Let's so do it. So if you get this one, then you win. Then you have more yeah, wins. Yeah, we'll, we'll than go losses. with we'll go with win. Yeah, okay. sure. Yeah, <laughs> I win if I get it right. Okay. Ready? Yes. You pick a good one. Um. Okay. Rockstar. That's real. Yeah, it's real. Yes. Nice. Nailed it. So a couple that I didn't choose. I wasn't confident at all, but I thought I just had to sound confident. Yeah, yeah. That was good. Okay. Um, yeah, so a couple that I didn't choose that are real. Aladdin. Nice. Charisma. Charisma. Big Max. And yeah, I think we already talked about Fairy Tale and Cinderella. So yeah. Well, I good definitely job. have to try an Iron Man pumpkin. I'm yeah. very curious. But are the <laughs> do you know what they look like? Like size wise? Uh, large, I, small. I don't know. I mean, okay. it makes me think it's probably one of the larger ones. Well, to our listeners, if you've eaten or seen an Iron Man pumpkin, the rare Iron Man pumpkin sighting, let us know <laughs> what it looks like or what it tastes like. I'm very curious. And we hope that you had a wonderful National Pumpkin Day. This is the only way that we've celebrated it. <laughs> yeah, that's true, actually. We didn't even eat pumpkins. Yes, because mm. you told me, I think, today that it was National Pumpkin Day. So. That's true. I, I mean, I, like I said, I, I, I woke up. I didn't know. I, yeah. It was trending on Twitter. What, yeah. what do you want from me? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, on to Eric. All right, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. I'm really excited for this next interview. Joining us now is Eric Wind, and Eric is a longtime friend of ours, um, and he's he's kind of a renaissance man. I've described Eric to people as probably the smartest friend that I have. He has a background. He's done some government work. He's done venture capital work, and he has, above all of his many talents, he has a deep and abiding interest in vintage watches. So kind of a cool niche thing, but he's really good at these. I have it on very good authority that Eric's one of the top three or five uh, vintage watch people in the world. So um, yeah, Eric, I don't know. Take that for what it is, but I have it on good authority that, that that's you. So Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Sally. I'm honored to be on the show. Yeah, we're really excited. We actually told our listeners that you would be on the show in the very first episode of this season. So we are glad that we can finally make good on our promise. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> That's great. And uh, I just want to round out your bio a little bit here, Eric. So you're not just a watch enthusiast, but very recently, uh, up until I think earlier this month or end of last month, you were vice president and senior uh, senior watch uh, watch guru. I don't know the exact specialist. Title. specialist. Thank you. Senior watch specialist at Christie's Auction House in New York. So traveling all around the world for Christie's. Um, and more recently, as of this month, you're the owner and proprietor of Wind Vintage, so you're doing some uh, private advising for vintage collectors and your own uh, vintage watch dealing. Is that right? Exactly. Yep. Thank you. Well, great. I'm excited to talk about uh, watches with one of the world's top three vintage watch guys. So let's get this rolling. I, I think my first question, I mentioned this is sort of a, a niche interest, but it's a really cool one. It's one that I've admired from afar because I know nothing about vintage watches, but I would really like to know more. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, I hope. But just to sort of set the stage for our listeners, what's your talk about your relationship with watches? When did you first get interested in watches? Is this something you've had all your life? And and where did this start? How did it start? Kind of set the set the stage here. Yeah, I I was sort of interested in watches ever since I got my first watch, which was very exciting for me. As I, I guess I was about four or five years old. It was a GI Joe digital watch that my mom got me, and it had nice. a compass in the the army sort of olive green strap. Uh, so I enjoyed that it had a compass and, uh, it, it told the date and I just, I loved it. Um, and then, 
Dick Tracy was one of my favorite movies as a kid. Oh, of course, and, yeah. Uh, of course, he had his watch where he could talk to the other officers, and uh, I really wanted one of those. I remember talking to my parents saying, is that real after the movie? Can I get one? <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. So they made a like a really cheap one that instead of uh, being able to talk to someone, it had like a light on the bottom so and it was a rectangle so i got that and it had a red strap it was rubber strap so i thought that was the coolest thing ever uh i actually still have that watch oh nice Uh, i was wondering (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what happened to the gi joe watch i think it may have gotten thrown away Uh, it's succumbed to too many gi joe reenactments probably (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think this the battery ran out and it was uh unfortunately maybe put in the trash but the um uh then, you know, it was just, uh, you know, of course, wore watches through high school, nothing too fancy. And then um, my dad gave me a Tissot watch in high school that I enjoyed. Um, and then my first mechanical watch came uh, after my grandfather passed away. And it was uh, Hamilton that my grandmother gave to him um for their wedding in 1947 uh oh that's cool that is awesome and he wore it like every day just about other than you know the times he had it serviced throughout his life it was like his one major watch and uh uh so i got that right before my senior year in college and around that time hodinkee started which is uh uh now sort of the preeminent watch blog uh based out of new york city uh, it was created by a friend of mine, Ben Clymer. I didn't, he wasn't a friend at that time, but I saw online sort of in its first month of existence, uh, was looking at GQ, uh, linked to 10 of the sort of top vintage watches ever. Um, and I remember that was the first time I saw something called the Paul Newman Daytona and some other watches. And I thought it was really fascinating. So then I began reading that blog every day and went back and read all the old posts. And, uh, I remember, um, over Christmas break, my senior year, just like spending a day reading every single post that was ever written. Um, and then, um, just found it really fascinating. So then after I I graduated from Georgetown in 2009, I was working in consulting um, for a, for a small firm, but I was really interested in watches and became interested in Hoyer watches from the 1960s and 1970s. And, uh, Hoyer is the predecessor to Tag Hoyer, uh, which is, you know, pretty well-known brand now. Yeah. I'm definitely familiar with Tag Hoyer. So that was that a merger of two, yeah, two brands? 19, yeah. 1985, uh, private equity firm called Tag, which was uh, French, um, technique avant-garde or tag for short bought them and then they changed the name to um to uh tag Hoyer. Hoyer, exactly nice. so um they the whole watch industry went through a big crisis in the 1970s and 80s related to the introduction of quartz watches uh which were the first sort of battery powered watches that were very accurate Seiko developed them in Japan and introduced their first quartz watch in 1969. Then it drove the two things happened. One, everyone wanted the most accurate watches, sort of, which were quartz watches. I mean, even today, like a $10 watch you can buy in CVS 
was like more accurate than a Rolex, which could cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. I had no idea. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, because they're that's one of the sort of great anachronisms about this whole hobby is that battery powered watches are far more accurate than mechanical watches, but mechanical watches are worth far more because of the the hand craftsmanship the marvel of engineering that's involved right yeah hundreds of pieces so um to make a movement versus you know these quartz watches might cost a dollar or two to make the movement so um right uh, yeah so um i became interested in in vintage watches and i began writing for hodinkee in 2010 um as a sort of a just as a fun thing to do. It wasn't even paid at that time. The blog was still sort of early and uh, got to know Ben just by email and then became obsessed and was doing this in my free time, writing about watches and buying watches and collecting watches and selling some watches. And it was, uh, yeah, it was, it became a great passion. So at what point did you think this would bloom into a full-time job for you? Never. I never thought I would do this as a full-time job. I, uh, um, my training at Georgetown was in international politics. Um, I did speech writing. I did some uh, venture capital advisory. I did all kinds of different things, helped set up nonprofits. And um, I realized I didn't know a lot about enough about business because uh, so much of my study at Georgetown had focused on the Middle East and international politics. So I, I went uh, to Oxford to do an MBA, which is where uh, I had the pleasure of meeting both of you. That's right. Yep. College, but um, had the pleasure of meeting you, Zach. And uh, then we, uh, I was still doing, of course, writing about watches during that time. And Hodinkee was really taking off uh, as a, as a business and as an influencer in the world of watches. Um, I began to write more about watches and vintage watches and, and auctions on that site um, and began sort of having all kinds of different uh, top collectors and auction houses paying a lot of attention to what I was writing because uh, there was and sort of still is a big gap in coverage about um, auctions there's you know hundreds and hundreds of people participating in these auctions, but very limited content related to the auctions, other than what uh, the auction houses themselves print in the catalogs. So um, any sort of commentary about watches in the auctions was very limited to sort of forums and uh, not very much discussion, other than sort of collector to collector right. or uh, dealer to collector. So um, after Oxford, I got a job in the biofuel industry uh, with a company called Titan Bioenergy Systems, which is a sort of an early stage company turning uh, tobacco into biofuel, including ethanol, biodiesel, and jet fuel, and then uh, working on sort of other crops to bioenergy. Um, And uh, I was still writing for Hodinkee in my free time. Um, And after doing that sort of biofuel job for about two years, I got... uh, offered a position with Christie's and decided to make the move, uh, to sort of make my passion, my full-time job. But, um, no, I, I really thought that I would probably have a career more in government service and, uh, things like that. But, uh, I'm very happy to be doing watches full-time for now. Well, you know, it's never too late to, 
I, from what I hear, you can actually do something totally unrelated to politics and then eventually become president. So it's <laughs> plenty of time for you, Eric. <laughs> exactly. The jury's not out. <laughs> well, so let's maybe kind of a more fun question here for you. You mentioned uh, early in the in the stages of your interest in watches, you became familiar with the Newman Daytona and all of this. If you were to, to list sort of, I guess, your three holy grail watches, the ones that you really, really want, but maybe don't have, what would, what would, what would those be? And you have to, you have to walk us through in layman's terms here. Assume I know nothing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think, um, I was thinking about this today because it sort of shifts and within watch collecting, there's, there's different reasons why a watch is valuable. Um, some of those, reasons are because of the person who owns it, uh, the provenance of it. And I think a good example of that is uh, Gandhi had a Zenith pocket watch that was, um, you know, from about 1910. And uh, it came up for auction at Antiquorum, which is a small, smaller watch only auction house, um, I believe in 2009. And that watch on its own was it was in rough condition would probably sell between fifty and a hundred dollars on eBay. Okay. Um, but because it was Gandhi's watch, it also included a pair of his glasses, a pair of his slippers, and wow. um, and uh, and a, supposedly the bowl he ate his last meal in. But say that most of the value was the watch. It went for two point one million, and uh, wow, that it was just because of him owning it. It wasn't because of the object. So that that's. That's one thing. The same happened with um, an, uh, a pocket watch that was Albert Einstein's that we sold last summer. Wow. Um, it was an unsigned watch and, again, would probably be like a $50 watch on eBay or maybe even less, but it went for almost $500,000 um, because of the fact that he owned it as a young man. Um, so provenance is interesting. Um Part of what's also interesting for me is kind of discovering things related to watches that people owned that maybe isn't really identified. So either from photographs or other things. And uh, I've always admired uh, Dwight Eisenhower. And we know he owned a Vulcane Cricket uh, watch, which is a, a watch that had an alarm. And there's a funny story I've heard associated with him owning it, which is that he during that time, post-World War II, the American watch industry began dying for a number of reasons. It was very strong until then. Um, but uh, so he, he put in tariffs on uh, Swiss watches and other watches. But the watch had a built-in alarm, and it went off during the press conference when he was announcing the tariffs. And uh, everyone knew that watch very well. So it would be like there being a, a tariff on Apple products and then someone wearing an Apple watch and people hearing that ring. During so the, the, so the Vulcan was a Swiss watch. And yeah. You, okay. exactly. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so it was like very embarrassing and it was slightly embarrassing for him as well. Um, <laughs> so it'd be like a tariff on iPhones and then you get a call on your iPhone. <laughs> knows the ring. Um, so he, um, no one knows where that watch is. And I've tracked down most of his watches at sort of his boyhood home at uh, the um, Eisenhower Library in Kansas and even talked to one of his grandchildren to see if there wow. might be other watches out there. So 
I think that would be a really, I really find those watches cool. I'm also very interested in presidential watches, which we can discuss uh, shortly. But that would be really cool both to find and um, separately would be a cool watch to own. Um, then there's another watch, which is I got very focused on uh, sort, of, sort of early in my uh, interest in collecting watches and it's still a sort of what people would call a holy grail it's a paddock philippe reference 2499 in platinum and there were only two made both in 1988 and um one is still in the paddock philippe museum it was made and sort of kept at paddock philippe the other was auctioned off later eric clapton bought it and oh wow he, that's pretty cool yeah and so he paid like over a million dollars for this watch probably at the time and then it was consigned to christie's uh by eric clapton uh in the 2012 november christie's geneva auction um and it brought over 3.9 million is that the most expensive watch ever sold at auction it is not um that the most expensive wristwatch ever sold at auction was 11 million last year that was also a paddock philippe and then um, there was another that went uh, that was a pocket watch, which was the most complicated watch for for decades um, until 1989 from from the 1930s until 1989. Uh, and that one went for 24 million um, in 2014. There's a lot of interest and certainly these high end watches have, have moved up in value a significant amount. They've become definitely significant items to own that's pretty cool though <laughs> yeah part of what makes watches so interesting is it's a bit of a treasure hunt still these were watches that were tools and they're watches that people bought and you know used and they pass down in families they end up at flea markets um they end up uh in drawers and people find them um there are so many countless stories of people discovering watches even at Goodwill for $5 and it's worth $35,000. And um, I wrote a story about uh, a gentleman in Arizona who went into Goodwill and bought a watch for $5.99 that looked interesting. And he posted a photo on Facebook on the vintage watches group. And um, a friend sent it to me and I immediately wrote him and said, do you know how much that watch is worth? He, he asked if sort of what it was worth and said, Hey, I just picked this up at Goodwill. Oh I my said, goodness. I said, it's worth at least $20,000. Holy and, cow. And he said, what? <laughs> and I've got to take it off my wrist. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and, uh, I ended up, uh, helping sort of negotiate the sale of the watch to another dealer for $35,000 wow. plus like a three, $4,000 watch. That was his grail. So almost 40,000. That's, uh, that's impressive. That's so cool. Yes. It became one of the most popular stories on Hodinkee ever. It got even like on the Steve Harvey show and all these random places, like every news outlet sort of reblogged it and posted about it. And, um, the Goodwill store where he went in Arizona, there were like hundreds of people going in the store. Oh, I'm sure, that. yeah. <laughs> Searching for more watches. <laughs> it was on the local news in Arizona. I just was dumbfounded for a couple of weeks. I was watching like coverage about my story on every. That's <laughs> every awesome. Story. 
Fox News and everywhere else. But there's even like million plus dollar watches out there that people discover. I've heard of watches discovered in the wall of a New York apartment that was worth a huge amount of money. Um, other watches that people bought. There's also Rolex watches that have become extremely collectible from the 1970s that maybe someone bought for $300 or $500 that today could be worth as much as $2 million. And these people are wearing these watches around with no idea they're worth that much. That's so um, funny. And, uh, and people find, you know, get these watches and they come to us and, uh, they sort of think they might be worth a few thousand dollars and it's actually worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, um, it's really an interesting, interesting field because of that treasure hunting aspect. I have a watch. It's, uh, I bought it for about 30 bucks. It's a Timex expedition. And <laughs> I don't know. It's maybe that's worth something. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. yeah. There was actually a, a gentleman who, um, had inherited a Rolex from his father. His father had passed away while he was, uh, at the U S military Academy at West point. And, uh, when he graduated, his mother gave him his dad's Rolex, uh, and he became a, a ranger and, uh, wore it on missions throughout the world. And we ended up selling it for over a hundred thousand. Wow. Uh, it's a rare Daytona. So that's really cool. Help put his, uh, kids through college i think for sure yeah that would make his dad proud no doubt <laughs> yeah so it was really neat and the watch had survived all kinds of combat situations and he he uh you know little did he know what how much it would be worth yeah <laughs> pretty wild You mentioned the presidential watches and your interest in those. Could you talk to us more about that and what kind of the role of the wristwatch has been in American history? Yeah, I wrote, uh, for anyone interested, a long Hodinkee article about sort of cataloging all the known presidential watches um, from George Washington through Trump. And uh, it really reflects the period of time, given the the watches that the American fathers were wearing, like Washington, um, you know, of course, all pocket watches, um, and some made in England, some, uh, made in the U S, um, all different sort of origins and watches were somewhat of a status symbol at the time. Uh, one, they were functional. You really needed it to tell the time because there weren't clocks everywhere and you right, needed yeah. to and you needed something fairly accurate. It wasn't like today where you could get a $10 accurate watch. You had to really, was a significant purchase. Uh, and even, you know, with people realized at that time, they would be something that would be like def passed on to future generations, kind of like today with high end watches. Um, that's sort of one of the neat things about it is when you're buying a watch, you're often thinking about it passing on to your children um even with with high-end watches today there's very few objects like that um you don't buy a car and think you know that your child will drive it one day usually um or or a handbag or clothes or things like that there's not very many objects we buy today where we think about a child hopefully enjoying it one day or maybe even grandchild but uh, watches have sort of been like that from the beginning because they were significant investments um, so, um, 
if you look at sort of the evolution of watches, you can see one, uh, the price got a little bit lower over time and, and, uh, two, by the time you sort of get to the, it reflects a little bit of sort of how Americans feel about, um, displays of wealth by their, their leaders. And, uh, by the time sort of Reagan wore, wore a Rolex, day chest um kennedy had a few nice watches and including an omega he wore on his inauguration that was a gift and um they wore like generally nice watches lbj was really into watches and wore to wore a big gold rolex on a gold bracelet um and it was like definitely a show of wealth a little bit but no one cared but uh that began to switch with gerald ford when he wore this uh, battery-powered watch, an Accutron, that you would press the button on the side and it would shine the numbers in red, um, and it was about $2,000. Um, Sounds pretty high-tech for the era. <laughs> it was, yeah. It, I mean, you can buy them now. You can buy those watches for like $50 on eBay, but uh, they were very high-tech to be able to show the time in red. Um, but... Um, it actually got called out in the post and people were sort of horrified that he would spend so much on this new technology. Um, I guess it would be like if, if, uh, Bush or Obama had worn like Google glass or something, it would, people would have gone a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Back. Um, that's so extravagant. Uh, you don't need that. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, he, um, he actually put it away cause he didn't like all the attention. Um, and, and that was the first time really, a watch's value got called out. And then when Clinton rolled around, I think he he may have remembered that or just sort of was wise to the fact or just didn't care, but he was wearing a Timex Iron Man, which is like a $12 watch or $12, $20 watch uh, uh, with a rubber strap. Uh, and I think he even wore it with a, a tuxedo, which was seen as an, really a big faux pas. That's so funny. Uh, I guess it'd be like wearing... Uh, I don't know, an Apple watch with a tuxedo or something. It doesn't maybe quite work, although I've seen people do it. But then, then you had George W. Bush wearing, like, again, a $12 Timex, and Obama wore a watch most most of his term that was a gift from his Secret Service agents that was bought at the Secret Service store that, you know, probably cost $100 or something. Yeah. Uh, so um, – they gave it to him during the presidential campaign and he sort of wore it throughout his presidency. But, um, the, uh, yeah, it was like one of those things. There's a, there's a show called the thick of it, which is a British satirical look at politics. And, uh, this one moment that sort of resonated with me with regard to politicians and, uh, the objects they're seen is, um, the secretary was, um, sitting on like a very nice chair in her office, a uh, member of the cabinet um, for the UK. And uh, the sort of political advisor walked in and said, you can't sit in a chair like that. That's crazy. Those people will uh, murder you for sitting in a $2,000 chair. They want you to sit on a, uh, basically a chicken bucket. <laughs> <laughs> A chicken bucket. <laughs> That's the only thing that will be acceptable to them. That's so funny. Yeah, it's very interesting. And then, of course, we've got sort of the exact opposite of that now with Trump in, who sort of spent his life 
you know, gold leafing things and trying to display wealth and ostentation, right. even through Obama, you know, any sort of displays of wealth were um, criticized heavily. Yeah, that's all really interesting. And um, it's, it's all stuff that you wouldn't find normally. So where do you where do you do your research to find these things? I mean, I was looking at your your long Hodinkee guy that you mentioned the the comprehensive guide to U.S. presidents and the watches they wore. And uh, where where do you find all that stuff? It's pretty fascinating. But I'm impressed yeah. that you, impressed that you dug it up. Part of the work was done, particularly around the early presidents, by the National Association of Watch and Clock Collectors and their National Watch and Clock Museum. Okay, it's in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. They had an exhibition of presidential watches, but it was mostly Washington through sort of LBJ. And just they just went to the different presidential libraries and saw what was out there. That was like the, the foundation. Uh, and then I did a lot more research and looked at photos and read sort of all different blogs. And I was uh, searching Google like a madman for, for each president's watches um, and made a number of discoveries in there that hadn't been documented before. So that was really neat. You mentioned the Apple watch and I'm just really curious to know what you think of smartwatches in general, in general, because they are obviously having a big heyday now and you are an expert in mechanical watches. So what do you think of them? And I guess if I can add to that too, in your experience, are smartwatches driving a trend away from vintage watches or are they actually driving a re-interest in sort of reaction to smartwatches? Because I I had a Fitbit for a little bit, decided I didn't like it, and since then I think I've found myself uh, sort of poo-pooing smartwatches and instead thinking, you know what, maybe one day I'll get myself a, like a nice vintage wristwatch. But even in, yeah. in the meantime, we both got watches at the beginning of this year right. that yeah. are not smartwatches right. because, yeah. yeah, we were kind of turned off from them and just thought, no, I just want a, a regular, a real watch. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of people – that that's the case. No question. Smartwatches are getting better, um, and, uh, more effective for what they're trying to achieve, which is, you know, providing you more information on your wrist and being able to take calls and being able to see your text messages and things, um, and all the fitness tracking. But, um, there are, there are some studies that suggest that having all that information can make you a little more depressed, um, which, uh, it, I think when I, I have an Apple watch, but I mostly actually use it for, uh, if I'm in the pool so that I can get calls or see texts. <laughs> uh, so that's literally the only time I use it, but it is like, um, I don't know. It feels really weird for me to look down and see texts and, uh, it feels like you're not really away from your phone at all. Right. Uh, like it's integrated on you and it's, uh, I don't really like the feeling per se. Where, where sort of the Apple Watch has really upended the watch industry has been on those sort of $1,000 and under watches like Fossil has been uh, really hurt the last few years. And there's a great article on Hodinkee about um, how Fossil has been really hurt. Um, I think their stock price went from like $70 to $7 or something in three years. It's fascinating. But a lot of people have bought Apple watches for sure. And, uh, I think, you know, for to spend sort of $400 or more on an Apple watch is not an insignificant amount of money for most people. So they sort of feel like they have to use it, uh, to justify the investment. Right. Um, but, 
some people like it. Uh, a lot of people sort of particularly early on just set them aside and said they wouldn't buy another that I knew. I'm not going to say everything's like bright and cheery for for the modern watch industry because I think they have a lot of issues. Modern watches have definitely been under pressure sort of since the Great Recession. Um, they're not tons of people lining up to spend $100,000 on a brand new watch. I think one of the other things is just an overall feeling about luxury where people want something customized and unique and your modern watches, they produce like, you know, thousands of the same watch. So yeah, you feel like you just spent a hundred thousand on this luxury item, but then you go somewhere and there's five other people wearing the same watch in the room and then suddenly it doesn't feel so special. Um, whereas with vintage watches, one, the sort of survivor rate is much lower for many of these watches. Um, two, condition is everything. So, you know, I feel like on certain Rolex models, you know, say they made a million watches a year, sort of in the 60s and 70s, they still make about a million today a year but uh, or more. The rate of those that are sort of in original condition with with unpolished cases is probably in the thousands out of a million less oh, certainly wow. i could be as low as say say in 1968 maybe of the million watches say that were made that year um 30,000 are sort of all original and unpolished or less so and that's across all models gold and steel and things for for many of these watches i feel like it's between one out of a thousand and one out of five thousand are sort of in really good condition just because these watches were worn and then whenever they were sent for service they were polished or they had and then they often had parts replaced like dials and hands and inserts and people want sort of all original untouched condition um so they're very very rare and then every watch of course has different what we say patina different scratches different different fading to the bezel or the the color of the luminous material that would glow in the dark has turned maybe bright bright orange or a, a creamy color or different colors depending on the the mixture and the environment in which the watch lived and maybe if it spent time in mexico or brazil the dial actually turned brown from the intense uv which happens and those watches are called tropical and worth a lot more money that's pretty wow. cool yeah that's so interesting yeah so there's and then collectors go crazy for these tropical watches it's really fascinating. Just every watch is made unique by its story and the wear that it's experienced over its life. So if uh, one of our listeners is maybe, uh, you know, disappointed by their smartwatch and they want to get into some vintage watches, what's what are some resources you would recommend apart from going on Hodinkee and starting to read a little bit? What are some resources you recommend or maybe a starting point, like a just a nice vintage watch to get? Probably the best. There's a really good article to to sort of toot my own horn that I wrote about how to buy a vintage watch on eBay. And uh, that really is a good sort of watches 101 look at what to look for. So uh, you want to kind of have a watch where the loom matches between the dial and the hands and hasn't been repainted and sort of telltale signs of things being changed and how to go about buying a watch on eBay. Um, That's um, a very... I think useful. And that article's on a Hodinkee. Yeah. Uh, and then it's really worth it just, uh, reading watch auction catalogs. 
um, from Christie's, Phillips, Sotheby's, uh, just to see the watches and read about their stories and see the estimates. Um, and, and then, of course, you can go back and look at past auction listings. Um, uh, there's some other blogs that are really good, like Worn and Wound, which sort of focuses on uh, less expensive watches, so sort of watches in the $1,000 price point and under, both vintage and new. There's uh, a site called uh, Analog Shift, which is a vintage watch dealer, and they write really detailed descriptions of the histories of their watches. Um, and then uh, there's a there's a couple affiliated dealers with them that are sort of lower priced um, that you can you can read about as well. It's worth looking at a lot of dealer websites just to see sort of prices and photos and histories. Uh, another friend of mine is Watch Stees, um, S-T-E-E-Z, it's based out of Wisconsin, um, and his, his sort of sweet spot are watches $1,000 and under. That's a really good site to look at and learn about watches too. You can look at my Instagram as well and see, uh, sort of scroll through quickly and read about watches uh, that I've photographed and I sort of tell very brief stories of them. That all sounds great, Eric. And for our listeners, if you do want to check out more of Eric's work, if you want to go to his Instagram, it's Eric M. Wind. Uh, and his website under construction right now for Wind Vintage, but it will be located at windvintage.com. So uh, in the coming weeks and months, you can go to windvintage.com and see what Eric's up to. Eric, thanks so much for joining us today and best of luck as you uh, get going with Wind Vintage and uh, apply all those skills. Thanks for educating us on the world of vintage watches. And uh, I think I want to go look at vintage watches at some of the lower price points for starters, at least. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks so much, Zach. It was an honor. Thank you, Sally. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you both. We are back to wrap up this episode, which has been a great one. And we hope that you have had a wonderful National Pumpkin Day. And Halloween. Oh, and Halloween, of course, because today is Halloween. Today in the future is Halloween. Next year for Halloween, we're going to tell spooky stories. Ooh. Just kidding. (laughs) I don't don't really have any spooky stories. Uh, But if you have a spooky story, you should tell us. And you can communicate with us via Instagram, at VernacularPod. And Twitter at Vernacular Pod, and our email, which is Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. Yes, and you can also check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash vernacular. If you have great ideas for future episodes, please let us know. If you want to hear us talk about something or talk to someone, let us know. We like ideas. And if you have not rated us yet on Apple Podcasts, please do that so we can help drive our listenership a little bit more. Yeah. You can leave us a rating and or review. And I think that's it. So thank you so much for listening to Vernacular Podcast. For Vernacular, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week.